0: Be sure to follow Send Me to Sleep on your preferred podcast player so you never miss an episode and a good night's rest.
1: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. Welcome to Send Me to Sleep, the place to find a good night's rest.
0: My name's Andrew, and I'm so pleased you've joined me tonight and taken this time for yourself to ensure you get a peaceful
1: night's sleep. Tonight, I'll be reading The Yosemite by John Muir. Part 10. Time Well Spent. Experience the serene
0: beauty of Yosemite National Park as Muir describes the perfect excursions for your time spent there. Witness breathtaking waterfalls. Explore glacier sculpted landscapes and immerse
1: yourself in the tranquility of nature. If you haven't already, find a nice place to get cosy. Take a deep, relaxing breath. And settle your body in whatever way feels most comfortable. Now, all you need to do How best to spend one's time in Yosemite? One Day Excursions Number 1 If I was so time poor as to have only one day to
0: spend in Yosemite, I should start at daybreak, say at three o'clock in the midsummer, with a pocket full of any sort of dry breakfast stuff for Glacier Point, Sentinel Dome the head of Iluet Fall, Nevada Fall, the top of Liberty Cap, Vernal Fall, and the wild, boulder-choked river canyon. The trail leaves the valley at the base of the sentinel rock, and as you slowly saunter from point to point along its many accommodating zigzags, nearly all the valley rocks and falls are seen in striking, ever-changing combinations. At an elevation of about 500 feet, a particularly fine, wide-sweeping view down the valley is obtained, past the sheer face of the Sentinel and between the Cathedral Rocks and El Capitan. At a height of about 1,500 feet, the great half-dome comes full in sight, overshadowing every other feature of the valley to the eastward. From Glacier Point, you look down three thousand feet over the edge of its sheer face, to the meadows and groves and innumerable yellow pine spires, with the meandering river sparkling and spangling through the midst of them. Across the valley... A great telling view is presented of the Royal Arches, North Dome, Indian Canyon, Three Brothers and El Capitan, with the dome-paved basin of Yosemite Creek and Mount Hoffman in the background. To the eastward, the half-dome close beside you looking higher and more wonderful than ever, Southeastward, the Star King. Girdled with silver firs, and the spacious garden-like basin of the Iluet and its deeply sculpted fountain peaks, called the Merced Group, and beyond all, marshalled along the eastern horizon, the icy summits on the axis of the range, and broad swaths of forests growing on ancient moraines, while the Nevada. Vernal and Yosemite Falls are not only full in sight, but are distinctly heard as if one were standing beside them in their
1: spray. The views from the summit of Sentinel Dome are still more extensive and telling.
0: Eastward, the crowds of peaks at the head of the Merced, Tulum, and San Jacquin Rivers are presented in bewildering array. Westward, the vast forests, yellow foothills, and the broad San Jacquin plains and the coast ranges, hazy and dim in the distance. From Glacier Point, go down the trail into the lower end of the Iluet Basin. Cross Iluet Creek and follow it to the fall, where from an out-jutting rock, at its head, you'll get a fine view of its rejoicing waters and wild canyon, and the half-dome. Thence returning to the trail, follow it to the head of the Nevada Fall. Lingering here an hour or two, for not only have you glorious views of the wonderful fall, but of its wild, leaping, exulting rapids, and, greater than all, the stupendous scenery into the heart of which the white, passionate river goes wildly thundering, surpassing everything of its kind in the world. After an unmeasured hour or so of this glory, all your body aglow, nerve currents flashing through you, never before felt, go to the top of Liberty Cap. Only a glad saunter now that your legs as well as your head and heart are awake and rejoicing with everything. The Liberty Cap, a companion of the half-dome, is sheer and inaccessible on three of its sides. But on the east, a gentle, ice-burnished, juniper-dotted slope extends to the summit, where other wonderful views are displayed where all are wonderful, the south side and the shoulders of the half dome, and clouds rest, the beautiful little Yosemite Valley and its many domes, the Star King cluster of domes, Sentinel Dome, Glacier Point, and perhaps the most tremendously impressive of all, the views of the hopper-shaped canyon of the river from the head of the Nevada Fall To the head of the valley. Returning to the trail you descended between Nevada Fall and the Liberty Cap, with fine side views of both the fall and the rock, pass on through clouds of spray and along the rapids to the head of the Vernal Fall, about a mile below the Nevada. Linger here if night is still distant, for views of this favourite fall and the stupendous rock scenery about it. Then descend a stairway by its side, follow a dim trail through its spray, and a plain one along the border of the boulder-dashed
1: rapids, and so back to the wide, tranquil valley. One Day Excursions Number 2 Another grand
0: one-day excursion is to the Upper Yosemite Fall, the top of the highest of the Three Brothers, called Eagle Peak on the geological survey maps. The brow of El Capitan, the head of the Ribbon Fall, across the beautiful Ribbon Creek Basin and back to the valley by the big oak-flat wagon road. The trail leaves the valley on the east side of the largest of the earthquake taluses, immediately opposite the Sentinel Rock, and as it passes within a few rods of the foot of the Great Fall, magnificent views are obtained as you approach it and pass through its spray. Though, when the snow is melting fast, you will be drenched, and very well so. From the foot of the fall, the trail zigzags up a narrow canyon between the fall and a plain mural cliff that is burnished here and there by glacial action. You should stop a while on a flat, iron fenced rock a little below the head of the fall, beside the enthusiastic throng of starry, comet like waters, to learn something of their strength, their marvelous variety of forms, and above all, their glorious music, gathered and composed from the snowstorms, hail, rain, and windstorms that have fallen on their glacier-sculpted, domey, ridgy basin. Refreshed and exhilarated, you follow your trailway through silver fir and pine woods to Eagle Peak where the most comprehensive of all the views to be had on the North Wall Heights are displayed. After an hour or two of gazing, dreaming, studying the tremendous topography, etc., trace the rim of the valley to the Grand El Capitan Ridge and go down into its brow, where you will gain everlasting impressions of nature's steadfastness and power combined with ineffable fineness of beauty. Dragging yourself away, go to the head of the Ribbon Fall. thence across the beautiful Ribbon Creek Basin to the big oak flat stage road, and down its fine grades to the valley, enjoying glorious Yosemite scenery all the way to the foot of
1: El Capitan and your camp. Two day excursions. Number one. For a two day trip, I would go straight to Mount Hoffman, spend the night on the summit,
0: next morning go down by May Lake to Tenaya Lake, and return to the valley by Clouds Rest and the Nevada and Vernal Falls. As on the foregoing excursion, you leave the valley by the Yosemite Fall Trail and follow it to the Tioga Wagon Road, a short distance east of Porcupine Flat. From that point, push straight up to the summit. Mount Hoffman is a mass of grey granite that rises almost in the centre of the Yosemite Park, about eight or ten miles in a straight line from the valley. Its southern slopes are low and easily climbed, and adorned here and there with castle-like crumbling piles and long, jagged crests that look like artificial masonry, but on the north side it is abruptly precipitous and banked with lasting snow. Most of the broad summit is comparatively level and thick-sown with crystals.
1: Quartz, mica, Hornblende, feldspar, granite, zircon, tourmaline, etc.
0: weathered out and strewn closely and loosely as if they had been sown broadcast. Their radiance is fairly dazzling in sunlight, almost hiding the multitude of small flowers that grow among them. At first sight, only these radiant crystals are likely to be noticed, but looking closely you discover a multitude of very small gillias, flozes, mimulus, etc., many of them with more petals than leaves. On the border of the little streams, larger plants flourish,
1: lupins, daisies, asters, goldenrods, harebell, mountain columbine, potentilla,
0: astragalus, and a few gentians, with charming heathworts, brianthus, cassiope,
1: calmia, vaccinium, in boulder-fringed rings or bank covers. You saunter among
0: the crystals and flowers. As if you were walking among stars. From the summit, nearly all the Yosemite Park is displayed
1: like a map. Forests, lakes, meadows and snowy peaks. Northward
0: lies Yosemite's wide basin with its stones and small lakes, shining like larger crystals. Eastward, the rocky, Meadowy Tulum region, bounded by its snowy peaks in glorious array. Southward, Yosemite, and westward, the vast forest. On no other Yosemite Park mountain are you more likely to linger. You will find it a magnificent sky camp. Clumps of dwarf pine and mountain hemlock will furnish resin roots and branches for fuel and light, and the rills sparkling water. Thousands of the little plant people will gaze at your campfire with the crystals and stars, companions and guardians, as you lie at rest in the heart of the vast, serene night. The most telling of all the wild Hoffman views is the basin of the Tulum with its meadows, forests and hundreds of smooth rock waves that appear to be coming on rolling towards you like high heaving waves ready to break, and beyond these the great mountains. But best of all are the dawn and the sunrise. No mountain top could be better placed for this most glorious of mountain views, to watch and see the deepening colours of the dawn, and the sunbeams streaming through the snowy high Sierra passes, awakening the lakes and crystals, the chilled plant people and winged people, and making everything shine and sing in pure glory. With your heart aglow, spangling Lake Tenaya and Lake Maya will beckon your way for walks on their ice-burnished shores. Leave Tenaya at the west end, cross to the south side of the outlet, and gradually work your way up in an almost straight north direction to the summit of the divide between Tenaya Creek and the main Upper Merced River, or Nevada Creek. And follow the divide to Clouds Rest. After a glorious view from the crest of this lofty granite wave, you will find a trail on its western end that will lead you down past Nevada and Vernal Falls to the valley in good time, provided
1: you left your Hoffman Sky Camp early. Two Day Excursions Number two. Another grand two day
0: excursion is the same as the first of the one day trips, as far as the head of Illuette Fall. From there, trace the beautiful stream up through the heart of its magnificent forests and gardens to the canyons between the Red and Masset peaks, and pass the night where I camped 41 years ago. Early next morning, visit the small glacier on the north side of Merced Peak, the first of the sixty-five that I discovered in the Sierra. Glacial phenomena in the Elouette Basin are on the grandest scale, and in the course of my explorations, I found that the canyon and moraines between the Merced and Red Mountains were the most interesting of them all. The path of the vanished glacier shone in many places as if it were washed with silver, and pushing up the canyon on this bright road, I passed lake after lake in solid basins of granite and many a meadow along the canyon stream that links them together. The main lateral moraines that bound the view below the canyon are from a hundred to nearly two hundred feet high, and wonderfully regular, like artificial embankments covered with a magnificent growth of silver firs and pine. But this garden and forest luxuriance is speedily left behind, and patches of bryanthus, cassiope, and arctic willows begin to appear. The small lakes which a few miles down the valley are so richly bordered with flowery meadows have at an elevation of ten thousand feet only small brown mats of carricks, leaving bare rocks around more than half their shores. Yet, strange to say, amid all this arctic repression, the mountain pine on ledges and buttresses of Red Mountain seems to find the climate best suited to it. Some specimens that I measured were over a hundred feet high and twenty-four feet in circumference, showing hardly a trace of severest storms, looking as fresh and vigorous as the giants of the lower zones. Evening came on just as I got fairly into the main canyon. It is about a mile wide, And a little less than two miles long. The crumbling spurs of Red Mountain bound it on the north, the sombre cliffs of the Merced Mountain on the south, and a deeply serrated, splintered ridge, curving around from mountain to mountain, shuts it in on the east. My camp was on the brink of one of the lakes in a thicket of mountain hemlock, partly sheltered from the wind. Early next morning, I set out to trace the ancient glacier to its head. Passing around the north shore of my camp lake, I followed the main stream from one lakelet to another. The dwarf pines and hemlock disappeared, and the stream was bordered with icicles. The main lateral moraines that extend from the mouth of the canyon are continued in straggling masses along the walls. Tracing the streams back to the highest of its little lakes, I noticed a deposit of fine grey mud, something like the mud corn from a grindstone. This suggested its glacial origin, for the stream that was carrying it issued from a raw-looking moraine that seemed to be in process of formation. It is from 60 to over a hundred feet in height, with a slope of about 38 degrees. Climbing to the top of it, I discovered a very small but well-characterized glacier swooping down from the shadowy cliffs of the mountain to its terminal moraine. The ice appeared on all the lower portion of the glacier. Farther up, it was covered with snow. The uppermost crevasse, or bergenschrund was from twelve to fourteen feet wide. The melting snow and ice formed a network of rills that ran gracefully down the surface of the glacier, merrily singing in their shining channels. After this discovery, I made excursions over all the High Sierra, and discovered that what at first sight looked like snowfields were in great part glaciers which were completing the sculpture of the summit peaks. Rising early, which will be easy, as your bed will be rather cold and you will not be able to sleep much anyhow. After visiting the glacier, climb the Red Mountain and enjoy the magnificent views from the summit. I counted forty lakes from one standpoint at this mountain, and the views to the westward over the Iluet Basin, the most superbly forested of all the basins whose water rains into the Yosemite, and those of the Yosemite Rocks especially the half-dome and the upper part of the north wall, are very fine. But, of course, far the most imposing view is the vast array of snowy peaks along the axis of the range. Then, from the top of this peak, light and free and exhilarated with mountain air and mountain beauty, You should run lightly down the northern slope of the mountain, descend the canyon between Red and Grey Mountains, thence northward along the bases of Grey Mountain and Mount Clark, and go down into the head of Little Yosemite, and thence down past the Nevada
1: and Vernal Falls to the valley. A truly glorious two-day trip. The Upper Tulum Excursion We come
0: now to the grandest of all Yosemite excursions, one that requires at least two or three weeks. The best time to make it is from about the middle of July. The visitor entering the Yosemite in July has the advantage of seeing the falls not, perhaps, in their very flood prime but next thing to it, while the glacier meadows will be in their glory and the snow of the mountain will be firm enough to make climbing safe. Long ago, I made these Sierra trips, carrying only a sack full of bread with a little tea and sugar, and was thus independent and free. But now that the trails or carriage roads lead out of the valley, In almost every direction, it is easy to take a pack animal so that the luxury of a blanket and a supply of food can easily be had. The best way to leave the valley will be by the Yosemite Fall Trail, camping the first night on the Tioga Road opposite the east end of the Hoffman Range. Next morning, climb Mount Hoffman, thence, Push on past Tanai Lake, into the Tulum meadow, and establish a central camp near the Soda Springs, from which glorious excursions can be made at your leisure. From here, in this upper Tulum Valley, is the widest, smoothest, most serenely spacious, and in every way, the most delightful summer pleasure park in all the High Sierra. And since it is connected with Yosemite by two good trails and a fairly good carriage road that passes between Yosemite and Mount Hoffman, it is also the most accessible. It is in the heart of the high Sierra east of Yosemite, 8,500 to 9,000 feet above the level of the sea. The gray, picturesque Cathedral Range. Bounds it on the south, a similar range or spur, the highest peak of which is Mount Conness
1: on the north, the noble Mounts Dana, Gibbs, Mammoth, Lyle, McClure, and others on
0: the axis of the range on the east, a heaving, billowing crowd of glacier polished rocks, and Mount Hoffman on the west. Down through the open, sunny levels of the valley flow the Tulum River, fresh and cool from its many glacial fountains, the highest of which are the glaciers that lie on the north sides of Mount Lyle and Mount McClure. Along the river, a series of beautiful glacier meadows extend with but little interruption from the lower end of the valley to its head a distance of about twelve miles, forming charming sauntering grounds from which the glorious mountains may be enjoyed as they look down in divine serenity over the dark forests that clothe their bases. Narrow strips of pine woods cross the meadow carpet from side to side, and it is somewhat roughened here and there by moraine boulders and dead trees. Brought down from the heights by snow avalanches, but for miles and miles it is so smooth and level that a hundred horsemen may ride abreast over it. The main lower portion of the meadows is about four miles long and from a quarter to half a mile wide, but the width of the valley is, on average, about eight miles. Tracing the river, We find that it forks a mile above the Soda Springs, the main fork turning southward to Mount Lyle, the other eastward to Mount Dana and Mount Gibbs. Along both forks, strips of meadows extend almost to their heads. The most beautiful portions of the meadows are spread over lake basins, which have been filled up by deposits from the river. A few of these river lakes still exist, but they are now shallow and are rapidly approaching extinction. The sod in most places is exceedingly fine and silky and free from weeds and bushes, while charming flowers abound, especially gentians,
1: dwarf daisies, potentilla, and the pink bells of dwarf vicinium. On the banks of the river
0: and its tributaries, Cassiope and Bryanthus may be found, where the salt curls over stream banks and around boulders. The principal grass of these meadows is a delicate calamagrotis, with very slender filiform leaves, and when it is in flower, the ground seems to be covered with a faint purple mist. The stems of the panicles being so fine. they are almost invisible and offer no appreciable resistance in walking through them. Along the edges of the meadows, beneath the pines and throughout the greater part of the valley, tall ribbon-leaved
1: grasses grow in abundance, chiefly Bromus, Tritissum and Agrotis. In October the
0: nights are frosty, And then the meadows at sunrise, when every leaf is laden with crystals, are a fine night. The days are still warm and calm, and bees and butterflies continue to waver and hum about the late blooming flowers until the coming of the snow, usually in November. Storm then follows Storm in quick succession, burying the meadows to a depth of from ten to twenty feet, while magnificent avalanches descend through the forest from the laden heights, depositing huge piles of snow mixed with uprooted trees and boulders. In the open sunshine, the snow usually lasts until the end of June, but the new season's vegetation is not generally in bloom until late July. Perhaps the best all-round excursion time after winters of average snowfall is from the middle of July to the middle or end of August. The snow is then melted from the woods and southern slopes of the mountains and the meadows and gardens are in their glory, while the weather is mostly all-reviving, exhilarating sunshine. The few clouds that rise now and then and the showers they yield are only enough to keep everything fresh and fragrant. The groves about the Soda Springs are favourable camping grounds on account of the cold, pleasant tasting water charged with carbonic acid, and because of the views of the mountains across the meadow. The Glacier Monument. Cathedral Peak, Cathedral Spires, Unicorn Peak, and a series of ornamental, nameless companions, rising in striking forms and nearness above a dense forest growing on the left lateral moraine of the ancient Chillum Glacier, which, broad, deep, and far reaching, exerted vast influence on the scenery of this portion of the Sierra but there are fine camping grounds all along the meadows, and one may move from grove to grove every day all summer, enjoying new homes and new beauty to satisfy every roving desire for change. There are five main capital excursions to be made from here, to the summits of Mount Dana, Lyle and Conas and through the Bloody Canyon Pass, to Mono Lake, and the Volcanoes, and down the Chilum Canyon, at least as far as the foot of the wonderful series of river cataracts. All of these excursions are sure to be made memorable with joyful, health-giving experiences, but perhaps none of them will be remembered with keener delight, than the days spent in sauntering on the broad velvet lawns by the river, sharing the sky with the mountains and the trees, gaining some of their strength and peace. The excursion to the top of Mount Dana is a very easy one, for though the mountain is thirteen hundred feet high, the ascent from the west side is so gentle and smooth. That one may ride a mule to the very summit. Across many a busy stream, from meadow to meadow, lies your flowery way. Mountains all about you, few of them hidden by irregular foregrounds. Gradually ascending, other mountains come in sight. Peaks rising above peaks, and their snow and ice in endless variety of grouping and sculpture. Now your attention is turned to the moraines, sweeping in beautiful curves from the hollows and canyons, now to the granite waves and pavements, rising here and there above the healthy sod, polished a thousand years ago and still shining. Towards the base of the mountain, you note the dwarfing of the trees, until at a height of about eleven thousand feet you find patches of the tough, white-barked pine, pressed so flat by the ten or twenty feet of snow piled upon them every winter for centuries, that you may walk over them as if walking on a shaggy rug. And, if curious about such things, you may discover specimens of this hardy tree mountaineer not more than four feet high, and about as many inches in diameter at the ground that are from two hundred to four hundred years old, still holding bravely on to life, making the most of their slender summers, shaking their tasseled needles in the breeze right cheerily, drinking the thin sunshine and maturing their fine purple cones as if they meant to live forever. The general view from the summit is one of the most extensive and sublime to be found in all the range. To the eastward, you gaze far out over the desert plains and mountains of the Great Basin, range beyond range extending with soft outlines, blue and purple in the distance. More than 6,000 feet below you lies Lake Mono ten miles in diameter from north to south, and fourteen from west to east, lying bare in the treeless desert like a disc of burnished metal,
1: though at times it is swept by mountain storm winds and streaked with foam. To
0: the southward, there is a well-defined range of pale grey extinct volcanoes, And though the highest of them rises nearly 2,000 feet above the lake, you can look down from here into their circular, cup like craters, from which a comparatively short time ago, ashes and cinders were showered over the surrounding sage plains and glacier laden mountains. To the westward, the landscape is made up of exceedingly strong, Grey glaciated domes and ridge waves, most of them comparatively low, but the largest high enough to be called mountains, separated by canyons and darkened with lines and fields of forests. Cathedral Peak and Mount Hoffman in the distance. Small lakes and innumerable meadows in the foreground. Northward and Southward The great snowy mountains marshaled along the axis of the range are seen in all their glory, crowded together in some places like trees in groves, making landscapes of wild, extravagant, bewildering magnificence, yet calm and silent as the sky. Some eight glaciers are in sight. One of these is Dana Glacier. On the north side of the mountain, lying at the foot of a precipice about a thousand feet high, with a lovely, pale green lake a little below it. This is one of the many, small, shrunken remnants of the vast glacial system of the Sierra that once filled the hollows and valleys of the mountains and covered all the lower ridges below the immediate summit fountains flowing to right and left, away from the axis of the range, lavishly fed by the snow of the glacial period. In the excursion to Mount Lyle, the immediate base of the mountain is easily reached on meadow walks along the river. Turning to the southward above the fork of the river, you enter the narrow Lyle branch of the valley narrow enough and deep enough to be called a canyon. It is about 8 miles long and from 2,000 to 3,000 feet deep. The flat meadow bottom is from about 300 to 200 yards wide, with gently curved margins about 50 yards wide from which rise the simple massive walls of grey granite at an angle of about 33 degrees, mostly timber with light growth of pine and streaked in many places with avalanche channels. Towards the upper end of the canyon, the Sierra Crown comes in sight, forming a finely balanced picture framed by the massive canyon walls. In the foreground, when the grass is in flower, you have the purple meadow-willow thickets in the river banks, In the middle distance, huge swelling bosses of granite that form the base of the general mass of the mountains, with fringing lines of dark woods marking the lower curves, smoothly snow-clad except in autumn. If you wish to spend two days on the Lyle trip, you will find a good campground on the east side of the river about a mile above a fine cascade that comes down over the canyon wall in a telling style and makes good camp music.
1: From here to the top of the mountains is usually an easy day's work. At one place near the
0: summit, careful climbing is necessary, but it is not so dangerous or difficult as to deter any of ordinary skill. While the
1: views are glorious to the northward are mammoth Mountain, Mount Gibbs, Dana, Warren,
0: Conness, and others, unnumbered and unnamed to the southeast, the indescribably wild and jagged range of Mount Ritter and the minarets, southwestward. Stretches the dividing ridge between the north fork of the San Joaquin and Merced, uniting with the obelisk or Merced group of peaks that form the main fountains of the Illyouette branch of the Merced, and to the northwestward extends the Cathedral Spur. These spurs, like distinct ranges, meet at your feet, therefore, you look at them mostly in the direction of their extension, and their peaks seem to be massed and crowded against one another, while immense amphitheatres, canyons, and subordinate ridges, with their
1: wealth of lakes, glaciers, and snowfields, maze and cluster between them. In making the
0: ascent in June or October, the glacier is easily crossed for then its snow mantle is smooth, or mostly melted off. But in midsummer, the climbing is exceedingly tedious, because the snow is then weathered into curious and beautiful blades, sharp and slender, and set on edge in a leaning position. Then lean towards the head of the glacier, and extend across from side to side in regular order. In a direction at right angles to the direction of the greatest declivity, the distance between the crests being about two or three feet, and the depths of the troughs between them about three feet. A more interesting problem than a walk over a glacier thus sculpted and adorned is seldom presented to the mountaineer. The Lyle Glacier is about a mile wide and less than a mile long, but presents, nevertheless, all the essential character of large,
1: river-like glaciers, moraines, earthbands, blue veins, crevasses, etc.
0: While the streams that issue from it are, of course, turbid with rock mud, showing its grinding action on its bed. And it is all the more interesting, since it is the highest and most enduring remnant of the Great Tulum Glacier, whose traces are still distinct fifty miles away, and whose influence on the landscape was so profound. The McClure Glacier, once a tributary of the Lyle, is smaller. Thirty-eight years ago, I set a series of stakes in it to determine its rate of motion. Towards the end of the summer, in the middle of the glacier, it was only a little over an inch in twenty-four hours. The trip to Mono from the Soda Springs can be made in a day, but many days may be profitably spent nearby the shores of the lake, out on its islands and about the volcanoes. In making the trip down the Big Tulum Canyon, animals may be led as far as a small, grassy forest-like basin that lies below the crossing of the Virginia Creek Trail. And from this point, anyone accustomed to walking on earthquake boulders, carpeted with canyon chaparral, can easily go down as far as the big cascades and return to camp in one day. Many, however, are not able to do this, and it is better to go leisurely, prepared to camp anywhere and enjoy the marvellous grandeur of the place. The canyon begins near the lower end of the meadow and extends to Hetch Hetchy Valley, a distance of about eighteen miles, though it will seem much longer to anyone who scrambles through it. It is from twelve hundred to about fifteen thousand feet deep, and it is comparatively narrow, but there are several roomy, park-like openings in it, and throughout its whole extent, Yosemite natures are displayed on a grand scale.
1: Domes, Al Capitan rocks, gables, sentinels, royal arches, glacier points,
0: cathedral spires, etc. There is even a half-dome among its wealth of rock forms, though far less sublime than the Yosemite half-dome. Its falls and cascades are innumerable. The sheer falls, except when the snow is melting in early spring, are quite small in volume, as compared with those of Yosemite and Hetch Hetchy, though in any other country many of them would be regarded as wonders. But it is the cascades, or sloping falls, on the main river that are the crowning glory of the canyon, and these in volume, Extent and variety surpass those of any other canyon in the Sierra. The most showy and interesting of them are mostly in the upper part of the canyon, above the point of entrance of Cathedral Creek and Hoffman Creek. For miles the river is one wild, exulting, onrushing mass of snowy purple bloom. Spreading over glacial waves of granite without any definite channel, gliding in magnificent silver plumes, dashing and foaming through bug boulder dams, leaping high into the air in wheel like whirls, displaying glorious enthusiasm, tossing from side to side, doubling, glinting, singing in exuberance of mountain energy. Everyone who is anything of a mountaineer should go on through the entire length of the canyon, coming out by Hetch Hetchy. There is not a dull step all the way. With wide variations, it is a Yosemite Valley from end to end. Besides these main, far-reaching, much-seeing excursions from the main central camp, there are numberless lovely little saunters and scrambles, and a dozen or so not so very little. Among the best of these are to Lambert and Fairview Domes, to the topmost spires of Cathedral Peak, and to those of the North Church, around the base of which you pass your way to Mount Conness, to one of the very loveliest of the glacier meadows, Embedded in the pine woods about three miles north of the Soda Springs, where forty-two years ago I spent six weeks. It treads east and west, and you can find it easily by going past the base of Lambert's Dome to Dog Lake, and thence up northward through the woods about a mile or so, to the shining rock waves full of ice-burnished feldspar crystals at the foot of the meadow to Lake Tenaya and, last but not least, a rather long and very hearty scramble down by the end of the meadow, along the Tioga Road, towards Lake Tenaya, to the crossing of Cathedral Creek, where you turn off and trace the creek down into its confluence with the Tlume. This is a genuine scramble most of the way but one of the most wonderful telling in its glacial rock forms and inscriptions. If you stop and fish at every tempting lake and stream you come to, a whole month or even two months will not be too long for
1: this grand High Sierra excursion. My own Sierra trip was ten years long.